This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. Yes, let's get into it. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, today we are going to be talking about emergence and emergent properties. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. This is the first episode that you have not come in with complete <laughs> ignorance yep. of the topic. You've actually done a little bit of research. So tell me what you've come across for this. Well, it seems to be the fundamental law of the universe, if there's anything. It's a really big topic, but put in simple language, um, it's how stupid things make smart things, you can say. Yes, that's the most the most simple form is complexity being born from simplicity. Or if you keep layering simple things on top of itself over and over again, eventually different outcomes, more complex outcomes will happen that might not have been predicted. Another term for this is actually gestalt which is that it's more than the sum of its parts. So if you keep adding one plus one plus one does not equal three, it equals 10 or five or whatever, but more, more than its components. Mm. So an example I came up with is imagine laying pieces of tissue paper on top of itself on a table. Okay. As you keep laying more and more pieces of the paper on it, you might start noticing that there'll be different bumps and grooves and maybe some ridges that are starting to emerge as you keep piling them more and more on top of each other. So that would be one property that's emerging. But then suppose you were to continue to lay them more and more on top of themselves. They might have like little air pockets throughout. And as the layers keep getting more and more deep, there could be different compounds or different substances being generated because of the pressure from the weight or the friction of the paper moving around just slightly. Time, maybe organisms will start to develop there. It's hard to say. We have no idea what what could happen in a large enough scale. It sounds pretty complicated. Okay, then let's talk about something more concrete. Okay. Uh, Ants. Ants. Let's talk about ants. Ants are stupid, so that goes with my kind of definition. They're they're not very highly intelligent creatures, individually. Yeah, individually they're kind of useless. They can't do very much, but collectively they end up making complex structures. They seem to be able to plan. They're able to expand and wage war. Some ants actually are able to actually do architectural feats like the, um, I think it's the carpenter ant. There's one ant I was just watching about earlier today, actually, that they they take a leaf that they bend and they bend it into itself. And then they use, <laughs> they use their babies to connect uh, with goo that keeps it closed. And they keep piling layer after layer of leaves on top of it and make a, a structure there. But individually, ants... Oh, wow. Yeah individually ants can't do very much collectively though having thousands of them working together right they can do a lot of impressive things and i think it's actually a good allegory for how our our body works in a way ants well hive insects are fascinating because they are one body a hive of ants with a queen at the top is essentially one one organism like us like our body except for instead of being contained within one sack one bag of skin each mm component is able to kind of run away and do its own things and separate. Right. Okay. And and it's almost like our liver being able to kind of crawl out of our body and it's pretty useless and unintelligent on its own, but as part of the larger system of our body, it becomes something greater. The whole is the is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes. 
And that, that's the same meaning as Gestalt. So yes, but if we look at different natural occurrences, let's say, okay, okay. we take a single cell, okay? Mm-hmm. One cell by itself can react to things and has a chemical composition that can start digesting food and using that for energy, which then allows it to try to like split and make more cells. And biology is seen, life is seen as an emergent property of chemistry, actually, because the line where life is and non-life is actually kind of fuzzy. For example, we have viruses, which we say are technically not alive, yet they still continue to operate as though they're alive. They propagate, they move around, but they're just kind of responding. And I'm not well read enough on that to know exactly why they're distinguished as not alive. To me, they kind of seem like nanorobots or I guess microbots. But if we look at a cell, a cell is basically just a collection of chemical Mm. reactions happening. Mm. And somehow this ends up equating to life. But then enough cells get together and they become a tissue, like a skin or something. Right. And then those tissues, enough of that gets together and it becomes an organ. And then to like general multicellular organisms like humans. Yeah. I see what you're saying in terms of the fuzziness and the gray area, because where's the line between a cell, which is inside of a table, like an inert object uh, versus that cell turning into something like uh, a virus or microbe and then something like uh, an organ and uh, a larger system. So there's, there's a spectrum of... Hold on a second though. What's that? When you say a cell on a table, what do you mean? Well, is, is a table not made up of cells? I mean, it entirely depends on the composition of the table. You're, are we talking about like a wood table, a metal table, any table? Let's let's go with, uh, because I'm looking at a wood desk right now. Yeah. I'm thinking like that. Okay. Well, that's jumping ahead, <laughs> putting the, the cart before the horse, sort of, because the table, well, not everything is made of cells. Wood is made of cells. It's made of plant cells because it's made of tree. But if it was made of, say, steel, or I don't know, graphite or something. I don't know what tables are often made of. Right. But those things would not be cells. Those would be um, molecules for the most part, I would say. (laughs) And so, yes. So inert tree cells that were once considered something that's alive, which is now no longer considered something alive. And there's, there's the spectrum in between. Right. The wood actually, it might be a really bad example because wood has a lot of interesting properties that just make it an amazing material. Like I've read that wood has antibacterial properties, which is why as like cutting boards, for instance, that they're better Mm -hmm. than say plastic where you can easily make grooves and have bacteria grow in it. Don't call me on that. Double check it. But I'm pretty sure that wood is superior in that way. Wood also is able to bend a little bit and it can swell and like manage to deal with a bunch of different environments. So even when it's dead, it's actually a pretty impressive material. This table is alive. Kind of. I mean, it, I, I don't know enough about botany and plants no. to say, but some might be able to come back. I don't know. I wonder if they aren't treated. Yeah. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Either way, it's artificial wood on my table right now anyway. So. <laughs> oh, and then, yeah, that's not, that's not a cell at all then. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the line is strange, but where I wanted to go with this topic from emergent properties is away from the natural world somewhat and go more, I guess we are still natural, but to go more towards society. I know I said we were going to go a little bit of your wheelhouse, but I guess I'm bringing it right back to sociology. Yeah. So you told me today we're not talking about sociology and what are we doing? We're going to talk about sociology. And I was expressing my concern about your ability to adapt to stuff that has nothing to do with psychology, sociology, and other societal phenomena. But here we are going back to it. So 
Good. You won't, you won't be left entirely in the cold. All right. So, <laughs> well, thank you for your faith in my abilities. Yes. Very high, very high expectations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the law of unintended consequences. Are you familiar with us? Tell me about it. Okay. No. So the law of unintended consequences <laughs> is, I think and you'll be familiar maybe in these terms. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about the flaw of the left and the strength of the right, but both of them have flaws in that. So the flaw of the left is that they want to change things too quickly. And the flaw of the right... You mean like the political... You mean the political left, I'm assuming? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I should have specified. The flaw of the political left is that they want to change stuff too much too fast and can actually end up hurting the groups that they are trying to help. And the flaw of the right is they don't want to change anything at all and just hope that the problems that are emerging will just go away. Right. And obviously finding, finding balance between these two is the key. But this is all related back to the, the law of unintended consequences because the left often doesn't seem to acknowledge this or want to acknowledge this. Hmm. So it's the law essentially is about intending to do good, but having unforeseen outcomes, either due to lack of knowledge or a misunderstanding of how the system works. So the left wanting to change things too fast and the right wanting to keep things the same too long. And you're saying the flaw of the left is wanting to change things too fast without knowing the unintended consequences of said change. Yes. All these systems are incredibly complex and even changing one thing. Yeah. The thing is like even changing simple things in a small system can have unintended consequences. Yeah. Butterfly effect. Yeah. Like that, that whole story about changing from social norms to market norms. It's This is one of the drawbacks of economics and generally thinking that people are rational. People will, will work more for free sometimes when it's for a civic good than they will if you pay them. Mm-hmm. So for example, you're probably familiar with this. It's a daycare, I think in Sweden or somewhere. Do you want to tell me what you know about it? I don't know the specific example. Um, I was re- agreeing that I know about the okay. market norms versus social norms thing. All right. So the example is there is this daycare where they had parents continually showing up late and the staff didn't want to deal with it anymore. So they decided instead of making it just free, they would start charging. They charged a fee, a late fee for parents showing up. And what happened when they started charging this fee, do you think? I now recall this example. Yeah. So when they started charging the fee, the parents showed up late more often because it took it out of the realm of social norms, like courtesy for showing up on time mm-hmm. and put it into market norms. Right. And meaning a fee for like a transaction in a sense where they thought, oh, it's socially acceptable for me to be late. I just have to pay this extra fee. Right. Now they were absolved of their guilt. They had no, they had no obligations to the people working there anymore. They decided, oh, I can pay that much. Sure. Yeah. I need more time. I'll just pay them. That's what they're asking. Mm. So this actually flies in the face of economic theory, which says that the more you charge for something, the less you'll get of it. And in this case, that's the opposite. The same also happened paying cities in, I think it was also in Scandinavia, paying them to house nuclear waste because they saw it as their civic duty because there was nuclear waste and the entire country benefits from that. They volunteered to do it for free, but then when they were offered money, nobody accepted it. (laughs) Nobody would accept the duty that was previously accepted for for free. So that's one way that things don't go as planned. But this is actually all leading away. I had an example because I know my left friends, they usually try to call me on me saying that the left changes things too fast to the point that they end up hurting the people they're trying to help. And they usually demand some sort of example. So the example I have is where certain states started... This is to do with sex workers. They started punishing Johns, the people hiring sex workers. That's a shorthand if you're unaware. 
They started punishing Johns more severely. So any John caught soliciting for sex would be punished much more harshly than they had in the past. And they were actually cracking down on it. This sounds well and good, uh, sort of, because like on the one hand, you're just kind of trying to stop them from having the work. So I'm not really sure what the fix is for the sex workers. They're just trying to make a disincentive, I guess, to stop them from doing it because less mm -hmm. clients means less sex workers, I guess. And it kind of worked, sort of, because like the average law-abiding person who just, I guess, needs a fix, <laughs> just needs a little human affection, they are not usually habitual lawbreakers. And they decided, you know what, this, the, the stakes are a bit too high here. I don't really want to risk to run the risk that's involved now. Mm -hmm. So the safer, more law-abiding people just ducked out, okay. leaving only, as you might see where I'm going with this. Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, only the hardened criminals that don't give a shit about just another uh, another charge. The more abusive and dangerous ones are the only people in town still looking to hire sex workers. And so in trying to help the sex workers, they actually just change their clientele to more violent, dangerous people. <laughs> so that's one example. Break the law. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Unintended consequences perfect example there. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw one more out, but you can you say what you're going to say here. I'm just curious, the connection to the social norms and market norms. Connection to social norms and market norms. The, those are not directly related to this particular thing. Okay. Um, the social norms and market norms were an example of unintended consequences where people, Oh yes. Yeah. They will put Got a it. price thinking that it'll do one thing, but it ends up not. Got it. That was an isolated example. Yeah. Yeah. They were disconnected. There's a book actually that's amazing. And I was just pestering you today actually to read it. It's Richard Koch's K-O-C-H, yeah. his book, The 80-20 Rule. Yeah. And he talks about a city that tries to fix a traffic problem they have downtown. They have a problem with traffic congestion and air pollution. So their solution is for the downtown area. This is where they want to alleviate these problems. Their solution is to install speed bumps and a 20 mile per hour speed limit. How do you think this goes wrong? Hmm. I don't know. How does it go wrong? Okay, so first, cars have to travel much slower because of the 20 mile per hour speed limit and the speed bumps, of course. So they're traveling more in second gear, mm -hmm. which is actually noisier and less efficient. So there's more exhaust. Oh, okay. <laughs> so hold on, hold on. You have to keep, this is breadcrumbs. It actually gets way more complicated. Okay, okay. The next one is shopping trips end up taking longer as a result of these slowdowns and traffic jams because of people going slower. So then people are getting annoyed by this. As a result, there's more cars in the area because people are taking longer to shop, but that eventually self-corrects. The, the congestion goes up for a bit, but then actually it actually ends up going down because people realize this is not a place they want to be. What they do is less people are shopping downtown in that area anymore. Instead, they're going to the next town over and shopping in the mall on the edge of that town. Oh, no. So by doing that, yeah, <laughs> it took care of the congestion and the pollution. But now the shops are closing because there are less customers. As a result, there's less tax revenue. So the tax revenue is plummeted, which then the city decides that they needed to continue to make their current commitments. <laughs> and so they raise the taxes. But then that extra tax burden caused the now suffering shops oh. to be even more punished and they were driven out of business. Wow. Just by installing speed bumps and a 20 mile per hour speed limit, trying to do a good thing, they actually ended up really screwing up their downtown and making a bunch of businesses go out of business. That's hilarious. Okay. That really drives home this example of the law of unintended consequences. And if you tinker with one thing, you might think you're solving that problem, but what other 
problems down the line are you creating? Exactly. Because wow. when it comes to these complex systems, which I guess is how I'm tying it back to emergent properties. Yeah. If you change a single tweak, we don't really fully understand a lot of them. And by changing one little thing, it actually ends up spinning off and getting a life of its own. Mm. So in public policy and economics, there's actually a theory called the, the theory of the second best. In markets, they believe that Okay, so the whole invisible hand is another emergent property from Adam Smith's economics theory. And while that is not a perfect theory, it does often work out that way, I guess, maybe at the beginnings. But where this theory of the second best comes in is that if markets are super efficient and they create a great product, sometimes that will still end up screwing the system by having, say, I don't know, like a 40% unemployment rate. And if that's a situation, then that's not great. That one subsection of the economy is doing really well, but it's actually corrupting or screwing up a bunch of other systems. And so what the theory of the second best is talking about is that while we do want different areas to be optimized as much as they can be, sometimes it's actually better to have a second or third best option because then that ends up making the the system as a whole operate better. What's a practical example of this? A practical example of this, I guess. Hmm. I need to think for a second on that one. Okay, so we could talk about the coming robotics revolution, perhaps, where the market will be more efficient by making robotics cheap enough that they don't need human labor anymore. But in doing that, they might be super efficient at making stuff and making it really well. But because they are getting rid of so much of the workforce, there is nobody with enough money to buy it. Oh, in the short term, at least until I guess, what if you employ everyone in robotics for one that's not feasible not everyone is going to be good at robotics it's like us right now saying that everybody has to go into computer science i know for two robots and ai i mean for real like this is a a different revolution than the the horse from the horses to car analogy that everyone likes to harp on ai as it goes on will be able to do a lot of the stuff without human intervention and you only really need to be there Um, I think there was like a joke about like a man with his dog. The man is there just to make sure that everything is working and the dog is there to keep the the man company. (laughs) And that's it (laughs) because the machine will largely do it all. So you will have the mechanics and such that we currently have. But as it gets more and more sophisticated, there are fewer and fewer people and there simply will not be jobs for them. Right. Which actually kind of leads us to universal basic income. And I'm not meaning to be political about this necessarily, but that was actually an idea I had of potential future areas where emergent properties could could come about. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll work our way there. Yeah. Another unexpected outcome of a complex system, I guess, would be the paradox of enrichment. You think that by being very successful or getting more rich or more powerful or really revolutionizing a field that you will have everything going your way and it'll be amazing and great. You would think. The problem is that, as I say, nothing fails like success, which I find to be a similar statement to we hurt the ones we love. It's kind of a prerequisite. Like you can't really fail too badly without without success. The, the greater your success, the greater your failure can be. Yeah. The higher you go, the harder you fall type of idea. Yeah. And similar to the, the hurt the ones you love. Right. You can only really be hurt by somebody that you do love. And the, the ones you love are only the ones that are close enough to you to see how you could be hurt. An example of this one, the paradox of enrichment would be in, say, predators and prey. There's a food for the prey, such as the plants. And then there's the predators eating the prey. If there's too many predators, then they'll overeat and they'll end up all starving because the, the prey will no longer exist. They'll be exhausted. But sometimes the prey actually gets too out of control as well. And then as a result of the prey spiking up randomly, the predators will then spike up. The prey will then go through all plants and eat all of them. And the predators will continue to consume at the current rate. 
which will then kill all of them. Basically, any single one in the system getting a bit too much power, too out of control, can end up making the entire system spin off of its balance and destroy itself. Right. And then I guess that's why they do controlled hunting in, in like national parks. I know Point Pelee yeah. in this area, they, they do uh, a deer hunting time where they send in everyone to, to hunt the deer because, if the, yeah, as you said, the prey grows too much, then they eat all the, yep. the, the plants and the whole system's thrown off. In that case, the ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. And that's also why they have hunting licenses and a certain number of heads per hunter being able to be hunted. Because if you just let them go wild and you have no idea what the stocks are at, because they generally have an idea of what's out there. And then the hunters, they say, okay, you can kill this many. And then they'll say, okay, that, that should make do for a little while before the populations start to get out of control. Yeah. And the reason we have to do that, though, is because of us interacting on that system. If we didn't do anything and we didn't exist, humans, that is, humanity, we wouldn't have to go in because the system would naturally fixing itself. It would just have disruptions occasionally. Sometimes, I guess, they would end up disappearing, but other things would step in because nature hates a vacuum, as they say. Mm. There was an example where a human factory, obviously a factory, was belching out smoke and it was turning all the birch. Birch bark is white with black flecks on it. These moths, I think they were, were landing on the, the birch to sleep or to hide. I don't remember exactly why, but they spent a lot of time on these trees and they were white on the birch bark. But then the coal being pumped out ended up making the birch bark turn black, which made the moths stick out like crazy and birds kept coming and eating them all. So then the, the moths suddenly within, I think a few weeks actually turned black because then they could blend in with that. And wow, <laughs> that was just some forced evolution by accident. Unintended consequences. So it's interesting though, when you talk about the interaction between humans and nature and how we have things like hunting licenses and ways to correct the, the environment. But if we weren't here, it would just be doing its own thing anyway. And is it just us trying to keep some kind of homeostasis by our own judgment of what it should should be. To a degree, yes. We are always kind of playing God every time we intervene with the environment. A book I read called The Overstory, amazing book. I think it's a masterpiece mm -hmm. in its way of conveying a lot of information. It talks about how our current practices of logging and replanting are unsustainable. One of the characters in the book, he is celebrating having planted, I think it was like 50,000 trees or 500,000 trees over like a decade of him being a planter. But then he is horrified to realize that he, yes, has been planting lots of trees and planting trees is generally good, but every tree he plants and all the trees he plants are the same kind. It's basically making a, a monocrop, which is generally a terrible thing because there's no biodiversity. A single disease can come in and wipe out all the trees he planted because they're all vulnerable to the same thing. But every tree he planted gave the logging companies permission to, to cut trees that already existed. Mm. And so a natural forest is actually kind of like a human or just a multi-celled organism. Oh, yeah diversity of different plants and trees yeah symbiosis and such like back to the ant metaphor yeah it's a giant organism without a kind of coherent body holding it together but it does very much interplay the mushrooms and the root systems the microbes the ants the birds the foliage the different trees they're all combating at once but they're all kind of symbiotically working together and creating something that's more than the sum of its parts yeah it's its own body exactly yeah i found it actually fascinating i didn't know very much about forests or trees, but this book made it very approachable and engaging along the way, though it's a bit slow to start. What's the name of that one again? The Overstory. The Overstory. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so I talk about the wisdom of markets a little bit with the emergent property from the invisible hand, where basically they believe that in a society, we actually do more good for society by maximizing our own personal interests, the things we want, generally speaking, ends up helping society more than if we actually intentionally go forward and try to fix stuff. A lot of top-down authoritarian countries have demonstrated this. The one I know best would be China, <laughs> and particularly the era of Mao, which is a bit of a political... Uh, non-starter with any uh, nationals a lot of the time. But I want to talk about a story of Mao deciding that mm -hmm. he wanted to increase the crop output. And so in the system, he wanted to get more food. He saw that, oh, sparrows, sparrows come and they eat the seeds. So that stops them from growing. That means we need to go and kill sparrows. So he made this big proclamation. Everyone go out and kill as many sparrows as possible. And I think they got paid per head. So they went out and killed all these sparrows. What do sparrows eat besides seeds? I don't know, like worms. I don't know. Yeah. Bugs, insects, pests. Okay. There's, a, there's yeah. a food chain going on. I would assume. And so without these birds, he basically summoned a swarm of locusts oh. when he tried to make more food in the end, less birds to eat the locusts, which meant that the locusts were overpopulated. They swarmed around and just devastated the, the results of the, the farming. And so he did a number of things like this, but it clearly didn't work out. And this is what they mean, I guess, by individuals thinking they know best, but actually screwing the whole thing up. Yeah. And, and I, I love that example because it, it really highlights that uh, well-intention and we can, it, it, you know, you can look at Mao and not necessarily apply that label. Well, okay. We can say his good intention was he wanted to have enough food. Fine. We can stop there. Everyone technically believes they have a good intention. Mm. Uh, but let's look at something we can all agree on is, is well-intentioned. Like if we want to end poverty, for example, and there's a lot of programs that try to intervene to, to do just that. But using this example as a, as a, as a case study in unintended consequences due to emergence in, in complex systems, it's a real lesson in, in being careful in what we tamper with. Yes. And doing small studies in select areas and the thing is, we can't even extrapolate from those small systems. Like no. I think Alaska has been doing the UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income, for a while, and it's worked very well for them, but they're using oil funds. And so that may not necessarily work with the, yeah. the continental states. Yeah. The continental, whatever. Yeah, and that's, I guess the limit of uh, experimental studies is because, you know, when we look at science, we say the gold standard is double blind, placebo controlled, a randomized controlled trial experiments. True experiments. Yes. Yeah. And that the problem with that is you know, scientists will be like, no problems with that is that you're studying something in isolation of a broader system. Yep. Yeah. And it's hard to say like psychology is notorious for this because I guess the hope is that if you have a large enough sample that the the noise in each individual will kind of even out. But it's like if say we're studying relationships, uh, relationships have so many different variables going on. Like there's the past history, there's the small annoyances, there's each person's temperament, there's I guess how their relationship has changed over time. There's tons of different aspects. I think it is interesting that given that we've been able to come up with some things that have good indication of whether they'll work out. Yeah. Like I think it's, um, I want to say Gottman. There's this study where he can basically take, I think a five minute conversation, you and your spouse or whoever you go in and they record you for five minutes talking about a contentious issue. So they make you talk about something that is something that you, you both know you have a disagreement on that is probably not resolved, or maybe even, even if it is revisiting it. And by looking at that five, I think, I think it's five minutes they thin slice, they slice up everything and code everything that happens. And they come back with, I think, 
it's not quite 50%, but I think they have a, a pretty high percentage wow. of being able to say whether you'll be together still in, I think it was like 10 years, some some projection. Yeah, that's kind of scary. And I think they have a fairly high estimation of that. And I guess the question is, would you want to know? Yeah, I'd, I'd do it. Pretty calm. Really? Be... So if the results came back negative, what will that change? If they come out positive, what will that change? I'd rather not know. It's funny because the input of the experiment on the system makes a difference. Possibly. Because let's say like... Yeah, you can have you can say the experiment says fifty percent chance you'll be together. I mean, I'm sure it gives you a probability, not like a not like some black and white yes or no. It's like you know eighty percent probable or something like that. But in in the effect of doing the experiment, you're introducing a new variable that you actually didn't study in the experiment. The variable of knowing the results of the experiment. Yeah, but the thing is, like, if it's a negative, it might be self fulfilling. If it's positive, well, it could go the other way too. Well, I, I think it's honestly going to be. I think it's going to be neither. It will probably do nothing because it's like, okay, if it's negative, well, you already may have known that, but you might say, ah, this thing doesn't matter. What do they know? If it's positive, you're like, yeah, great. We're going to keep doing what we already were doing. What? But if it's negative, it would allow you to intervene and say, oh no, there's some real issues here. We need to get couples counseling. And now you're increasing your probability due to that knowledge of the experiment. Maybe, but I'm not, I mean, that, that depends, I guess, how open people are to couples therapy. I don't know. But back to emergent properties. Well, that's an emergent property. And that's why I bring it up because the experiment, ex- it's kind of like time travel. What, what, how so? The knowledge of the future changes stuff. Or like some people think that, I mean, in a lot of time travel stories, mm-hmm. you go back or I think it's a Twilight Zone episode. Guy goes back, finds baby Hitler, kills baby Hitler. Goes back to the present, nothing's changed. Goes back to check on what happened, sees that the baby he killed was actually true baby Hitler, yes, but Adolf Hitler, but then apparently some unwed mother had seen the incident and placed her baby in the carriage where the mother apparently wasn't able to tell or just didn't care and just raised that substitute baby as baby Hitler. And so the substitute baby ended up growing up to be the true Adolf Hitler we know. So it's like the the very, the very act of intervening with it could cause the thing you're trying to stop from happening. Wow. That's, that's some pretty complicated stuff. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, let's move off of it then. The next thing I want to talk about was, um, the wisdom of crowds, which is actually a book by a guy named James. I have no idea how to say his last name. Sero Viecki. Hmm. Have you heard of this? The wisdom of crowds? I, I get the idea. It's a, a kind of a common thing in, in sociology. Yeah. Uh, it basically means that the aggregation, sorry, the collective information that a group will put forward, the average of that information will end up being better than any single member of the group. So the most common example that people give and that he opens the book with, I haven't read this one. He asks individuals to guess the weight of an ox and the average of all their guesses ends up basically zeroing in very, very close to the actual weight of the ox, which of course the average is going to be more, Mm. more accurate than any given, like the majority of the guesses, because it's going to be in the middle of all those guesses, generally speaking. Yeah. And this is different than groupthink. It sounds like because each person is making a guess independent of other people. It's not like they're getting together and coming up with like a groupthink situation. That's actually an example of how um, the wisdom of crowds can fail. Yeah. Is where a persuasive speaker can convince a bunch of people to do something that they wouldn't do because it's his or her arguments that is swaying them and they're conforming to that and then their neighbors conform. It is still an emergent property, the way we we behave. And now that I'm thinking of this, it's kind of a tangential point. But I remember hearing that in design for architecture, for building walkways and stuff, if you have a large enough crowd, it actually behaves like a fluid. 
So like it spreads out to fill it and it kind of funnels through the openings as if you were to fill it with water, for instance. The way that the water would fill the the room is the way that people will as you continue to add them to it. I remember thinking about that a lot in China. That is so interesting. And I remember reading something from actually the psychologist Stephen Hayes, who wrote in his book, A Liberated Mind, something like this, where in airports when walking, which I guess many of us haven't been to a whole lot recently. <laughs> but when there's large crowds in, in airports and you're trying to get from one side to another, what he does is with, you know, rolling his luggage along, he'll sway from one side of the aisle to the other side of the aisle. And he'll start doing that and then look behind him and notice that everyone tends to be doing something like that. So it's like kind of a ripple effect of something he's doing. And then the crowd seems to be matching that. That's odd. I'm wondering the context exactly. It's very, very odd. Because I do, I, I wonder it as well because I read it and that's what he says. I'm like, wait a minute. I want to know more about what. I want you to find that again so I can try it. Yeah, I'm like, what does he <laughs> mean about this? It's, it's uh, pretty intense. I, it's hard to imagine it actually working, but uh, worth thinking about. Just one last point on the wisdom of crowds, though. I, I don't think it's generally good. I think it's the same thing as what I was saying about emotions last episode, where it works in certain contexts where we have good intuitions, but there are certain intuitions where humans vastly are just unprepared for. So say exponential growth, like with the pandemic. I would keep trying to tell people that exponential growth is how this thing spreads exponentially. So it'll seem yeah. flat, 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 sudden spike upward. And there's a huge surge because it'll be hidden. It's like, okay, it's not really a big deal. It's like zombies, basically. Like one bites another one. There's only two, whatever. It's just two zombies. And then each of them bite another one or two and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that suddenly where there was maybe only one within however many doubling cycles, it ends up having the entire city overwhelmed. Yeah. So this seems like a key feature of emergence is, is this uh, exponential property to things like uh, Mao killing the sparrows. It seems like a small thing, but that ripple effect is exponential when, when you follow what it's doing in the ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. A lot of times, especially like the bigger the intervention, the bigger the, the problem will be. That's why I think sometimes like we really need more research before we act a bunch of the time. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't like for all we know, we could just say, OK, oh, just make this one little tweak there. Problem solved. The problem is people want to see big action from politicians. And sometimes a very minute change over like a decade can make massive changes that are exactly what we wanted. Yeah. But the person won't get touted for it because yeah. it seems like he didn't do enough. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And so small incremental intervention over time gets you where you want to go versus the big drastic revolutionary change, which gets you potentially a lot of unintentional consequences. Yes. Okay. For instance, killing a terrorist leader, what's going to happen? There'll be a power vacuum, which actually makes them fight even more because there's more people trying to get into the position that he just had. And unless somebody's there to step into the vacuum, it'll continue actually breaking out with even more war. So it's, it's, all these things are so complicated. And whenever, this is actually mm -hmm. the flaw of the conservatives I find a lot of the time is they oversimplify things and think that there is no issue or like, it's just, oh, it's fine. We just have to do this one little thing. Sometimes we do have to do a lot. Sometimes we don't have to do a lot. And it's often in between. Mm. Though before we finish, I do have one more thing I want to talk about, which is a book called Free. Yeah. The subtitle being Future of Radical Price. And it's written by Chris Anderson in 2009. He was the former Wired editor and now the TED curator. And so the reason I want to talk about this is because he had a very interesting idea about what happens when something becomes so abundant that it's basically free? Back in like the 50s or 60s, I think they were promising with nuclear power, they were promising that we'd have energy so cheap that it wouldn't even be metered. We wouldn't even be bothering to pay for it. It's just so cheap. You'd pay ah 20 bucks done for the month. 
And that's what we could have had. And we still could have that potentially, maybe not that cheap with that technology at that time because building the infrastructure costs money. But over time, we could actually get there. And I'm not talking about with renewables. We actually have the technology, it seems, with nuclear power. <laughs> nuclear waste is usually the, the problem that people throw up with that. But the problem is like, wh which would you rather have nuclear waste, which we will then buy time, we can bury it and it'll be an issue for the future. Huh. But we will have basically clean energy. We won't be heating up the earth and we won't be constantly breathing in poison, essentially. Or we continue to breathe poison and say that nuclear waste is going to be more dangerous. <laughs> it's kind of silly. Uh, I picked the nuclear waste and my inclination would be just shoot it off into space. We don't have to deal with it. And now I'm, after this discussion, I'm like, oh, if we start launching stuff from our planet out into space, now there's unintended consequences with that. It's possible, yes. But I think with space, the unintended consequences might be that we will be wasting a lot of resources to get it off the planet and that we are in a relatively closed system. The Earth is a closed system that doesn't have anything coming in. Yeah. So if we're shooting stuff out and we're not getting stuff in, yeah. Potentially. We need to find better recycling methods and such, but yeah. sustainability. The thing is, we might not need to do that necessarily if we do things like mineral, mineral mining meteors. So in concept, and this is very feasible, but maybe still need some leaps in technology. Not maybe, definitely. What we can do is we can find a meteor that's going to fly relatively close to Earth. We fly out, we land on it, we mine a bunch of it, blast it, and take the parts we want, and then we fly back and bring it back into Earth. This is one way in which that we could end up with essentially unlimited amounts of materials to work with, so we could basically be material rich. Wow, meteor yeah. mining. It's it's feasible, and it's, it might happen within our lifetime, <laughs> but it's hard to say when. But I want to go back before we move off of the, the, wow. the energy so cheap it wouldn't be metered. Fascinating. The knock-on effects that he's talking about for this is that all buildings would be electrically heated. All cars would become electrical, basically. And because cars would need to have better batteries to be able to drive further, they'd have better battery technology. With that, we'd have so much energy that we could actually store massive amounts of energy and use that excess runoff to do stuff like massive desalinization projects. So taking seawater and making it into potable water, drinkable water, which then we could use to irrigate huge swaths of land. We could then convert deserts into actual livable places which again, who knows about the knock-on effects of that. This is all in the book called Free because he's talking about how things have developed so quickly. Three particular technological areas have developed so quickly that it's essentially free. So computer processing power, digital storage, and bandwidth. Those things have all basically doubled every year. So every time they double, they actually have in price. So this is actually known as Moore's Law. Moore's Law is actually the, the slowest of the three of these. His prediction was that the number of transistors on a silicone chip will double every year. I think we've lagged behind that a little bit in the recent decades or the recent decade, but it's still closely conforming to that. And right now we're coming up to a problem with basically quantum physics and not being able to make things small enough and dense enough. But then storage has doubled every year and bandwidth has, the speed of bandwidth has doubled every nine months. Think about streaming and stuff. We used to have to rent videos and now it's cheaper for us just to stream it online for like a small fee. <laughs> Remember when Netflix used to be a video rental service? Yeah, they'd mail you a DVD because that was the cheapest thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Physically moving up an object from one place to another was cheaper than just delivering it directly to the place. But now, obviously, that's not a problem anymore. And the question then is, as these things continue to speed up, what emergent properties will happen? Hmm. The internet is actually a giant emergent property that we've lived through, if you think about it. 
and we're still dealing with the ramifications now. Mm-hmm. How do we police free speech when it ends up being used by tyrants to cause insurrections? How do we, I mean, I guess, and then dictators are trying to st- think about how do they stop people from interacting enough, like China or Russia with their very heavily policed internets? How do they stop people from communicating enough that they can coordinate and actually push back against the power of the government? And we're still unraveling that as we go. Wow. I'm always impressed by your your depth of research and uh, breadth of application of these concepts. Good. I'm glad that I'm leaving you breathless. Breathless. I'm breathless. I don't know what to say. It's just... (laughs) I know we're just out of time. For those wondering, we have a more strict time restrictions these days. The conclusion I had is that basically things have unintended consequences. The actionable things we have is that sometimes we need to stop and take account and think about what can happen. Things do not happen in serial. They don't happen one after the other. They all happen at the same time often. And that's the part that actually gets us into problems with not thinking of complete systems when we're operating with things. Mm -hmm. And also one of the things for designers and engineers specifically is that we're moving so quickly that the solution to a problem and its implementation might be so slow that the solution will be obsolete by the time it's ready. And so engineers are now being tasked with having to understand entire systems, try to recreate them and then find the solution. So with greater computation, hopefully we'll be able to do that. Yeah. So in simple language, uh, think of the bigger picture rather than just your isolated objective or goal and think about uh, the ripple effects that like the butterfly effect, uh, the butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the world. It could create a tsunami on this side of the world. It's very real. Yes. And this is why hedgehogs should definitely reach out to their fox friends. (laughs) And that's all for today. So thank you for tuning in and we will look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. The answer is stupid. Stupid things make smart things. Oh, look at you, Mr. Fancy Pants. All right, I'll roll out of bed and just start listening, I guess. But if it doesn't please me, I am not happy. But for that sultry tone, I have to get real, real close in here and start whispering. Come quad.